It's five o'clock on a sweltering Friday in June 2013. I'm outside my favorite coffee shop in Austin, running late for work. Even my future self is not good at keeping track of time. I could call a robo-taxi to share with strangers, hop on a hoverboard, or flag an electric cab. Decisions, decisions. The future of mobility is coming fast, but there are a couple bumps in the road. Data shows the world's infrastructure can't sustain the number of vehicles expected with economic and population growth. Climate change is also dramatically changing the way we get around, because how we choose to get to the office and return home can make a big difference in cutting greenhouse gas emissions. To better prepare for the future, we need to understand the potential risks and how to manage them. That's where TEST comes in. I'm Derek Burrows. We're going to discuss the ways TEST can help us improve how we get around and create a safer, more environmentally friendly form of transportation. Uh, testing. One, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Why testing matters. This is a test. An original podcast from NI. This is only a test. Three. Hey, what does this button do? Right now, we rely on a network of roads, railways, power lines, and pipelines to get around. We rely on that infrastructure without even thinking about it. But we should be. A lot of that infrastructure is crumbling, and we're going to have to rebuild it before we can start moving away from it. Case in point, the Erie Canal. Back when it was built in 1808, it was cutting-edge technology. Mules dragged boats along the canal. That's how goods and people traveled across New York. Then a railroad bridge was built across the canal. Beyond the canal and railway is the I-390. It's part of the national highway infrastructure built in the U.S. in the 1950s. And if we look up, We can see airplanes flying over the canal, rail network, and highway. Each of these infrastructure examples were built fast, one right after the next. Think about it. When the Erie Canal was built, there were no gas stations. And then a few decades later, gas stations were everywhere. As new opportunities presented themselves, new technologies appeared. Now, for the first time, really, we're thinking about how these infrastructures affect the planet. For vehicles, this means adapting to future emissions requirements and improving safety features. And time is of the essence. Last year in the US, more than 37,000 people lost their lives in traffic crashes. One of the leading causes of preventable deaths in the country. We know the speed of the vehicle can result in injury and death, but so can the very design of the vehicle. Beth Osborne, Director of Transportation for America, says when thinking about the future of mobility, we need to think about the ways we can build safer cars. Thinking from the perspective, not just of saving the life of people who get in a crash inside a vehicle, but how to avoid those crashes. And not just through bells and alerts in the system, but 
being able to see things clearly and like being able to see things in front of your vehicle. These are the things that can make, frankly, a poorly built system less deadly from the perspective of the person developing the vehicle. Can you expand a little bit on how test might be able to help improve some of the dangerous designs that we see out in the world? Well, from the perspective of the vehicle itself is testing the impact on the world around it. Again, thinking about not just whether or not your crash dummy does okay, but whether or not there was any way to make the person inside the vehicle more aware of conflicts and more able to avoid them in the first place. It's a very different construct. The truth is, through test, we know how to make our streets, sidewalks, and bike lanes safer. And we can save lives. NI is part of Vision Zero, the global effort to end traffic fatalities and major injuries. What do you see as the role test engineers play in getting us to Vision Zero in the future? There's a lot of reasons that we have traffic fatalities. There's drunk driving. There is people playing on their cell phones and things during cars. There's pedestrians that, and bicyclists that sometimes they make a mistake, jump in the way, and they get you know not to the fault of the driver necessarily. And there's plenty that are at the fault of the driver. There's a lot of things happening that can cause these traffic fatalities. And the idea here is that with better safety features, you can get to a state where you can prevent those fatalities. That's Jason Marks. He's a business development manager with NI and specializes in autonomous vehicles. Jason says in order to prevent traffic fatalities, we need to develop software that supports Advanced Driver Assistance Systems, or ADAS, and the hardware it runs on. And anytime you're developing embedded systems that consist of software and hardware, you have to validate that they're actually safe. And this whole validation process is multifaceted. The test engineer's job is not just, I sit there with the multimeter against a thing and I measure the voltage against something. The test engineer's job for validating these really, really complex feature sets that can identify a person on the road and make a decision as to how to navigate from that person. That is the core fundamental responsibility of the test and validation engineers. Those folks will help build the technology that will enable vehicles to sense and understand the world around them. You don't necessarily need machine learning algorithms to say, hey, I've spotted something in front of me. But if you want to say, what is that thing in front of me? That's a person. That's a car. That's a, a cat. You, know, you need to have some mechanism that you can actually detect, you can perceive the world and then classify that world. And that's where the real fundamental part of uh, machine learning comes in is where we're using algorithms that are trained on real data sets that are labeled so they know what they're getting right and wrong and tested on real data sets, trained and tested on simulated data sets so that they know what they're seeing in the world. And that's a lot of what makes these systems so unique. The mobility of tomorrow also means making today's infrastructure resistant. And that's going to take some work. Our current transportation scenario leaves a lot to be desired in terms of safety and efficiency. The U.S. Department of Transportation's Research and Innovative Technology Administration is testing ways to make the country's roads safer. They're doing this by improving vehicle technology and through smarter road designs. This is an important first step to the mobility of the future. Because in order for us to make self-driving cars, we also need better roads and infrastructure. So how is our current infrastructure changing to enable the future of mobility? So there's some really cool stuff happening with a variety of different companies in Florida, in the Bay Area, in Israel, in China, I should say Austin, Texas too. And they're equipping infrastructure in order to actually accommodate the future of mobility. What I mean by that is 
you might have a, a street post in the middle of a road that has LIDAR, camera, radar, wireless devices on them that can communicate with a variety of vehicles. And either they can orchestrate traffic flow or they can at least send warnings to vehicles. And you can imagine that like if you're going through a traffic section, you ever gotten really pissed off at somebody that's like merged into your lane and slowed down. And you're like, gosh, if you just kept going the speed, like everyone would flow and the, this whole traffic snake wouldn't have occurred. If your infrastructure could orchestrate, hey, here's the optimal speed to enter this intersection, to enter this freeway and to keep going, then you have an ability to actually optimize for traffic flow. That's awesome. I cannot wait until that future exists. And I think it's a really cool challenge to overcome as well. For many people, the big question about self-driving cars is, when can I buy one? But there's another question that's equally as important and often overlooked. When will our infrastructure be ready to accommodate self-driving cars? We have to remember that roads and all the bells and whistles that go with them were designed when governments thought only humans would drive. In this century, America has become a nation on wheels. We ride on wheels to work, to shop, to play, to go about any place we want to go. We depend on wheels to bring us the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the things we use. But when we depend on wheels, we depend also on highways and roads and streets for the wheels to roll on. A neon green light may be the best way to tell a human to safely drive ahead. But self-driving cars may process this information better if it was given to them over radio or cellular network. Self-driving cars are one of the most challenging transportation projects ever created. Getting around in one takes precision and decision-making. Potholes and down power lines are just some of the unpredictable external factors that can get in the way. Environments that are structured well, like paved roads and highway medians, are easier to automate. Unfortunately, many driving environments aren't like this. For this technology to improve, we have to test it in real open road conditions. And not only think about the technology we're using, but the environments in which it's deployed. Improving our roads is going to take time. So while we wait, we may see dedicated lanes to self-driving cars in order to refine their technology and protect other drivers. We already see this in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where they have designated test areas for self-driving cars. But this is a unique case. Developing and rolling out self-driving cars has been a slower and more difficult process than some of us thought it would be. The main problem is, it's expensive to retrofit our current infrastructure, and many governments just don't have the money as they struggle to keep up with simple road maintenance. So, how can test help? Now, one of the things we talk about a lot in simulation of the vehicle itself, so we talk about everything around this concept of an ego vehicle, ego vehicle being the vehicle under test. So you test in simulation how other actors in the world, other streets in the world react to the ego vehicle. In the case of testing infrastructure, you may do very comparable things, but you are not the ego vehicle anymore. You are the infrastructure. So there are just a number of actors in the world that you then have control over, and that's the action that you're taking. In the same way you would do majority of your testing in simulation, you know, it's going to be very expensive to do this testing on vehicles. Like there do exist test tracks, you know, like Gomentum in California, for example, that could help you do parts of this. But really, you know, you're going to see a ton, a ton of energy expenditure on simulation. And one of the things that's gonna make simulation really hard here is like even simulating a sensor suite for one vehicle becomes quite challenging. You need to have a number of high performance computers and GPUs to do that in real time at real world fidelity. And even so that you know has its own series of trade-offs associated with it. 
But in order to do sensor suites of multiple infrastructure nodes, that scale needed for high-performance compute to do that, just it's going to make things very big and convoluted and complicated to do. So there's going to be a, a strategy deployed around what level of fidelity you need to simulate these things in. So there's the challenge of testing to make sure that each of these different vehicles can accurately communicate their information up to this tower. And also the challenge of once that sense and plan step have happens, how that tower or whatever part of the infrastructure communicates that back with the vehicles. You're probably not going to test the fundamental RF signals. You may, to some extent, where you need to test like how does material properties reflect different things on the electromagnetic spectrum. Yes, that's going to be important to make sure that you've got your nodes in the correct place. But at some point, you're going to want to put that type of wireless infrastructure in chambers and test that over the air as well. There's a, there's a heck of a lot of testing that's going to occur between point A and point B. And it's not going to be one company that provides the entirety of the infrastructure. It's going to be a multitude of companies that are feeding like an infrastructure pole that's equipped with this company's LIDAR, this company's radar, this company's wireless technology, this company's processing technology. And it's going to be quite challenging. And to be fair, there are startups all over the, the space that are working on that. I think we're a little further off from having something in place from an infrastructure perspective than we are having vehicles equipped to actually be able to handle it. Things get even more complicated when self-driving cars have to adjust to traffic lights that are vertical in some cities and horizontal in others. But if we integrate digital technology with our current infrastructure, traffic lights could all look the same to any self-driving car. This would make it a lot easier to launch the cars in new cities. This smart infrastructure could also help self-driving cars navigate parking garages, something we all have trouble with. In order to do this, sensors would be mounted in garages and would tell the cars exactly where they were. This is a pretty ambitious goal, integrating smart infrastructure and getting me to make a smooth turn in a parking garage. Sensors aren't cheap. And besides the initial costs of installing them in garages and along roadsides, they'll have to be maintained. It's a tough call for local and state governments. Pay for light poles in a crosswalk that can help a broader portion of the population, or invest in infrastructure that only serves a small number of people now, but could make a big impact moving forward. Smart infrastructure could help tackle some of the most challenging road safety and traffic problems. At the top of my list, traffic congestion. Ah, I just love the sound of commuting in the morning. Besides adding extra time to our commutes, traffic congestion results in the loss of about $179 billion a year from the U.S. economy. So, what solutions do we have? Beth weighs in. We did a, a study of congestion, for example. We found that in the largest 100 cities in the country, we have had zero decreased congestion or keep it even, they've all seen a massive increase in congestion over the last 25 years, including those who have lost population and those that lost population and added capacity. There is no technology that fixes that except for maybe using models that provide actual information instead of utter garbage like we do today. We don't test our models in this field. We just follow them because they tell us what we want. There's opportunity to use technology better, but first we have to orient the program towards the goals we claim to value, like safety, efficiency, equity, state of repair, climate. But really, the only goal in transportation right now is to move vehicles quickly. 
we're pretty bad at that too. Beth says clearing the congestion has been a highway paved with obstacles. On the congestion side, on the, you know, how are vehicles moving side, there's a lot of things that the model, which was designed to figure out where to lay out the highways back in the 40s, they can't detect a concept called induced demand. The notion that if you add free capacity, people will use it because they overuse free stuff in a a free economy. And so that is non-existent. But you see it a lot in some of the new conversations about taking down highways. The model cannot detect that a trip might go away, that a trip might change times, that a trip might go to another mode. So the model is instructed to keep every existing trip in the existing corridor. One of the biggest problems cities have now, and will have in the future, is sharing space. With so many people close by, we have to think of ways to get them from point A to point B as quickly as possible. Take Manhattan, an island mainly covered by roads and parking garages. So much space is devoted to cars, but it doesn't have to be that way. If the goal is to move people as quickly as possible, driving a car around Manhattan is only slightly faster than walking and slower than riding a bike. So besides being a healthier alternative, both personally and for the planet. Walking or riding a bike saves people money and may get them to work quicker. The thing is, Manhattan and other cities around the world can reduce their reliance on cars. There's another safer path and test can help us make those infrastructure changes as well as save lives. Obviously, when you're trying to change something in a city, that's something which needs, you need to implement it, you need to test that it'll work, and then you need to put it out into the world and then test it again once it's out there. What does testing look like, especially uh, around the infrastructure changes that we've seen to keep up with population density growth or population density changes, as you mentioned, some of these suburban areas that have caused some some challenges for our, our vehicle manufacturers? From a, a government perspective, I don't think we've done much of anything there, which is why we've created such inefficient and unsafe conditions. We've just been passive observers of it and constantly reacting to it. From a government perspective, there is a a binary choice that we refuse to make. We want these roads we build in those areas to be both locally serving and throughways at the same time. And much like when we try to put two contradictory things together in other areas, like, say, a couch and a bed, you get something that really stinks at both. If you want it to operate as a throughway, you have to prohibit the development. Once you allow the development, you should just concede to the fact that you gave up your highway. We don't require that, which is why we create conflict and why we create death, because we refuse to make a choice and we pretend that that choice isn't there. In terms of how people have turned to technology, I think a ton of what we've used to help people figure out what their options are for getting around has been an attempt to help without actually making any change to our transportation system. You will hear a theme. The focus on AVs, I think that there is an assumption that the AVs can figure out what humans haven't, which is untrue. And if you watch the AV testing, which I'm enough of a nerd to watch on YouTube, Every time I see, not every time, a good four times out of five when the computer glitches, it's actually a place where the driver glitches. It's actually a place where it's just confusing and it requires a 
a leap of faith, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and I get where the computer's coming from because I've been in that position. I'm like, I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to do here. I'm a little uh, conflicted on if we finally make these changes for the computer after spending a century not making those changes for people. But I think if we could finally use the fact that even the computer can't figure out whether or not they should go or stop when you've got a turn that tells you to go and stop at the same time, maybe that testing forces us to grapple with some of the issues we should have grappled with before. And I see that as very exciting. And it's one of the places technology has been invaluable. Beth talked earlier about some of the ways cars can be built safer. And there's no question that tech is leading the charge. A few years back, some folks predicted we'd already have self-driving cars and be sleeping behind the wheel on our commute. Sorry, Rip Van Winkle, but that's still a dream. However, we do have some pretty cool autonomous features in our cars already, like cruise control. On the scale of autonomy, we're at level two from a scale of one to five. Jason breaks down what these levels mean. I mean, really, we just needed some way to keep track of what level of autonomy we were talking about. Like, if, is this just something that gives me a warning and, or tells me what to do or takes control of my vehicle or is fully in control of my vehicle? So there's just incremental steps along the way. And people will argue to the death of it, like what each of them means. But the really important intersection you need to know is on this two, three, four kind of section. So two is the, the kind of Teslas of the, the Tesla autopilots of the world, where you're still in trouble if you crash. The vehicle takes control for driving on the highway, exiting the highway, entering the highway, things like that. But ultimately, if you get into a crash, you're responsible, the driver. Level three is this weird kind of either one of you might be in control at any given time. There's like a, an actual handoff of saying like, now you're in control. Now I'm in control. That doesn't really exist. Oftentimes in the past, they said we shouldn't actually be doing this because it doesn't make any sense because there's going to be this argument, this legal argument around who's in charge, but now they're kind of coming back to it. Then level four is really like within certain operational domains, the vehicle's completely in charge. So a steering wheel in your car, but like maybe I can go from LA to San Francisco without touching it. Jumping from level two to three, four, five is going to be tricky to implement in urban environments and expensive. But even the electronic safety features we already have in our cars are making us safer and helping to improve our infrastructure overall. In 1912, GM debuted its first car the Chevrolet Classic 6, on the streets of Detroit. It was the company's little gasoline engine that could. And after more than a century, in 2034, GM is expected to roll its last gas-powered car off the assembly line. GM says it's only going to make electric cars beginning 2035. But widespread adoption isn't going to happen overnight. Our current infrastructure isn't set up yet for people to travel long distances in an electric vehicle because there aren't enough charging stations. Many of the new electric vehicles can go over 200 miles before needing to be recharged. That's great for day trips, but not so much for that epic road trip or for folks who can't charge their cars at home. Some companies are building fast chargers, which take 20 to 30 minutes. That's significantly slower than refueling at a gas station, but could be helpful on a long distance trip. Advances in electric car batteries are helping to improve the range. Despite the popularity of electric cars, analysts project it's still going to take decades for them to rule the road, and even longer for them to have any drastic effect on greenhouse gas emissions. 
That's because it's going to take a long time before all the existing gas-powered vehicles reach the end of their lifespans. Policymakers will need to consider other strategies to speed up this process. That could include buying back gas-powered vehicles and scrapping less efficient cars already in use. It's going to take more than electric vehicles and self-driving cars to help improve our infrastructure. Cities will need to integrate technology and combine multiple modes of getting around, including private cars, public transportation, cycling, and walking, in order to fight congestion and pollution. This will look different for each city, but planning and the right tests can help us make the future of mobility more affordable and efficient for everyone. I'm Derek Burns. Testing 123 is an original podcast from NI with Derek Burroughs. To find out more, visit our webpage at ni.com slash perspectives.